Hi. We're really enjoying these fun, listener-created versions of our opening. But just to make sure that we've covered our butts, please also listen to the more serious version of our disclaimer message that's at the very end of this podcast. We really don't want to get sued. Ten Hut! The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are appearing as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. What are you looking at? Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly the aircraft. Now drop and give me 20. Down what? Yeah. Surely make you lose your mind. All right. Anything else before we get going here? I'm just waiting on a cue to open a beer. Yeah. Uh, I'm way ahead of you. I have Diet Pepsi. I uh, hang on. So I got. Oh no! I got Lineys. I I, I forgot an opener. Oh, never mind. I can twist these. (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna do that. I was gonna damn you, damn you, damn you. I'm never gonna live this down ever in my life. Am I gonna live this down? so, David, we found you a new way to go flying. Actually, you found it and pointed our, pointing it to us here. This is, uh, I don't know, this this is crazy. I mean, this like this this beats the jetpack. I'm telling you, this is this is this thing. Well, this is this this is definitely this is definitely rocket chase squirrel territory, man. Yeah, I mean, this it's... is like the wingsuit. This is a uh, this is the guy who has this uh, this sort of <laughs> jumpsuit, if you will, uh, with webbing from under the arms up to the side to, up to his torso and between the legs, and uh, and he goes flying. These videos have been on the net for some time now. I probably saw them. Yeah. I don't know, six months or more ago. There's an, a real. I don't. I actually haven't pushed the play button on the one that you pointed us to here, but uh, there's one that shows him zooming down along really close to the terrain um, as he went uh-huh. down this hill. Is that what this one is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is. Uh, this is intense. That's a little camera trick, but uh, he, yeah, he's closer than I would be. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd be. I'd be a um, a ball in the corner next to a boulder waiting on the ambulance to arrive but you know because he's going i mean maybe it's just an optical illusion of the camera it seems like it's going pretty fast past past this terrain as well well well, that's that's not really an optical illusion that's uh, he's he's going like a squirrel out of hell yeah yeah um i don't know what is what is uh cruising velocity is or anything like that Uh, the the camera the only camera trick would be how close he might be to the terrain i don't i don't know yeah well let's uh, put it this way he starts out on the terrain yeah, yeah, that's true too. Well, you know, so, he, 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 this is base jumping, and the title of the video is "Wingsuit Base Jumping." Uh-huh. Uh, you know, all of our aviation friends out there who have probably heard of base jumping uh, among our friends in the skydiving community—that's where they jump off a fixed object like a tower, a building roof, a uh, half dome in Yosemite. Uh, used to be a favorite place, and uh, this guy in the rocket J squirrel suit has jumped off the top of a mountain, and initially, yeah, he's kind of close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so this is falling into the category of something you would fly, Dave. Uh it's I, it's something I would definitely look at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd want to find a place where uh, the quick separation between launch point and terrain happened a little quicker than it does here. Uh, might, might even prefer to do it getting out of an airplane 
where there is no terrain near. Well, I haven't, don't don't some skydivers, freefall folks, do this kind of thing where they they have a little bit of webbing to kind of give them more what control over the freefall? Yeah, yeah. Some of the uh, some of the suits that uh, the freefall jockeys like to wear, uh, but I, I, most of them don't approach the extent to which this suit replicates uh, an actual flying squirrel in terms of the amount of uh, of, of Skin that gets tightened up between arms and legs. Right, right. I mean, and so y'all, y'all take a look at it and decide for yourself. One thing about it: uh, hanger fees would be cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they would. I, I definitely got the feeling from watching the video that close to the terrain was part of the appeal. But maybe I just was reading something into it. I don't know. It's it was. I, I don't. I, I don't think that that's out of the uh, out of the uh, out of question yeah. at, at all because yeah. that's one of the thrills that skydiving buddies of mine have told me about the base jumping that they've done, uh-huh. or you know, jumping off the New River Bridge in West Virginia. And How stuff high like is that? that? What's the drop from that to the water? I guess. Uh, it's just a few hundred feet, man. Man. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, mid to, to the the lower third of three-digit numbers. Right. It doesn't make a 1,000 feet. Man. So, well, we already know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't jump out of an airplane 10, 12,000 feet up, so it's like doesn't no, – obviously, I'm not going to get it. But uh, Well, actually, the nice thing about jumping out of an airplane – now, the highest jump uh, altitude I ever made was, uh, uh, was only at uh, 10,000. And uh, it was out of a C-47, which was a lot easier to jump out of than a 182. Yeah. Uh, you basically throw yourself at the back of the wing, and you know Mother Nature, gravity, physics, and airflow take care of everything else. I see. But the nice thing about jumping out that high is how long you have to freak out before you hit anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it just prolongs the pleasure, so to speak. Right? Yeah. Well, take a look at the uh, video. It's uh, in the show notes, and uh, it's uh, it's it certainly is a rush to watch. That's for sure. I, oh, I'm... it's a rush to watch. Hangar fees would be cheap, and uh, the only gas you'd burn would be getting to the launch site. That's right. Yeah. So, anyways, on that note, uh, I want to say welcome, folks, to episode number one hundred and fourteen of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode. There's a whole story here, but I'm going to say it straight first. We're recording this episode on Thursday afternoon, January 1st, 2008. Happy New Year! And uh, and I say in the afternoon because it is for me afternoon, and I'll get back to that in just a second. Let me say hi to my friends that are here in the virtual hangar. One of those uh, voices out there is uh, my friend Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, now you're recovering you know, from a little bit of a cold. We can actually hear that in your voice a little bit. And, uh, oh man, yeah. Quick and dirty is I went home to the Ohio River Valley where I grew up for Christmas, and it had been warm enough uh, in recent days that uh, all the little ugly vegetative things that irritated my sinuses. So as a as a resident there, just hammered me like a like a bad Christmas present. <laughs> so I, I hope you're feeling a little better now. I I, I am so, so somewhat better than a few days ago. And, and and Jack, you know, we the the story is we started to record this episode uh, just before Christmas. Had an interruption. We were going to do it last Sunday, but I had no voice. Yeah. So and, here we are on New Year's Day. Been. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and then as, well and and as I said on the in the uh, as I said in the forum, there are those who think that actually you having no voice would improve the podcast. But, <laughs> well, we, we can try that. If anybody can read uh, American Sign Language over a podcast, uh, we'll try that yeah, sometime. Well, one of these days. One of these days. Well, you know, I have to have someone to argue with. That's right. What, what, what fun would it be? What fun would it be? <laughs> and that is, of course, Jeb Burnside is talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Now. You're still yeah. in Sarasota, Florida, but you're yeah. not in the same Sarasota, Florida as before. That's correct. I have uh, moved my residence, not physically moved the house, but now, uh, now we sort of knew, we sort of off the record knew this was going on in the yeah. background. And I have yeah. to say, for, to just have to tell our our listeners that that at least I myself and I suspect David as well are just desperately jealous of your your new situation. Tell us about your new well, living thank situation. You. Um, do the the normal stuff first. Trade you know basically a 1500 square foot house uh for i think the house is really three times as large uh-huh. uh, as the house i was living in um it's an older home you know it's got its little issues and quirks and it gives it character um and it's a good fur piece outside of the city it's uh um a good 30 minutes from uh, the house in which i used to live which was um <clears throat> Just off the main drag, if you will, the mm-hmm. uh, US 41 here in Sarasota. But there's a silver um, lining to it being so There's far a great out of town. big silver lining here. Well, there's, there's a several silver linings. One is what? the rent didn't change. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm paying the same rent as I was at the other house, and, and the girlfriend and I, living girlfriend and I, have a lot more room now. We have her stuff out of storage, you get my stuff out of storage, and, and you know, we'll get all set up. But. The yeah. uh, the real punchline is that uh, the house is located in a residential air park. All right. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. We got a twenty five hundred foot paved and lighted runway. Uh-huh. Um, the, uh huh. The development is called Hidden River. Uh-huh. It's uh, east east of Sarasota. Uh, Sarasota. Sarasota. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and it comes with a uh, huge, huge uh, hangar. Hangar. Uh, next to the, uh, I'm off one end of the runway, the east end of the runway. Uh, there was a, a airplane earlier uh, doing touch and goes, maybe 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked like a looked like a Cessna 140. I think I think that's what it was. Uh, very pretty airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, just out doing touch and goes as the evening, you know, uh, came. So, so uh, you're living the dream now. Living the dream. Yeah, I haven't gotten the airplane here yet. I haven't gotten the hangar emptied right. yet. Because you just moved like a couple of days I just, ago. just literally moved. We, we put everything on the truck and brought it out here on Saturday. And that's kind of the other reason we didn't do this on Sunday, because I didn't have internet on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have it now, obviously. Um, and uh, just, uh, you know, I just kind of got this grin on my face that I can't seem to wipe off. And um, just really kind of looking forward to this lifestyle. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And, very jealous. You know, this is. I don't. I don't yet know everything there is to know about the based aircraft here. Um, earlier, there was an A thirty six that came, uh, and, and he acted like he lived here because he um, uh, landed short and turned around and taxied off the runway on the far end, and haven't seen him since. Mm-hmm. The one forty. That I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if that was a local aircraft. There's a, a Commonwealth based here that's supposedly very, very nice. Uh, the guy comes and goes. Uh, there's a 2007 Skyhawk with a G1000 in it. Um, cool. There's a there's an Aztec that comes and goes. 
um, yada, yada, yada. But the pièce de résistance, I, I just got home yesterday evening, and I'd been grocery shopping, and I was um, uh, getting ready to unload the car, and I saw an airplane uh, in the pattern as I as I was driving um, the access road, and I said I didn't I didn't think too much about it. It looked like it actually looked like a friend of mine's airplane, uh, but it didn't turn out to be. What it did turn out to be was one of the prettiest um, Voltees uh, BT thirteen. Um, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Polished, uh, very pretty, very nice. Sounded just, just, and the guy just, you know, lands, rolls out, tack turns right in front of my house, and taxis right past. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh. Now, for those of us so, not familiar with that aircraft, can you kind of give us a quick description of it? Uh, like- B- uh, BT-13 was kind of like the predecessor of the uh, um, AT-6 and SNJ. Okay. Or maybe the maybe the successor. So I'm that not makes sure. it a monoplane. What high wing, low wing? Low, low wing, low wing, all all metal monoplane uh-huh. with a two two seat tandem uh, canopy, um, military trainer, tail dragger, retractable. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, R nine nine eighty five radial up front. Um, just a sweet sounding airplane, and and I don't know whose this was. He I, I looked it up online, and it is based here. Um, but uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting up close and personal with that airplane. Yeah, well, uh, and I'm sure there are others other stuff around here like that too. Well, There's all kinds of little hangers and and cubby holes and, and things like that around. So uh, this is going to be fun. I bet, I bet, very very cool. We're very jealous. We're headed your way. We're going to be down yes, there in a couple more weeks, and you know we just may never leave. Oh. Well, there you go. You uh, might be kind of tight with, with four people in the house, but that's okay, too. Yeah, you know, you have to make sacrifices. So. That's right. That's right. There, of course, there's always the, you know, someone can live in a hangar. I'm just stunned. I've, I've seen Volte vibrators up close a couple uh-huh. of times. Uh-huh. This, and, one was, uh, this one was cherry. This one, just, you could tell. I mean, there wasn't a fingerprint on it. Um, polished aluminum uh it looked really 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 good sounded even better yeah i say if it, if it's polished aluminum boy there is somebody with a uh, real masochistic streak in their ownership lines it's because there's no more work yeah. in aviation than keeping yeah. an aluminum airplane polished especially in florida um i've probably got you know a couple of young kids that he you know pays to do this but uh uh, it, it it would be tough to keep that airplane polished, but it it looked it was done to the nines. Yeah. It was really sweet, very very cool. Well, yeah. congratulations and uh, thank you. Good luck thank getting you. settled in. And uh, well, we're we're you know setting up the kitchen today, and uh, finally got my office more or less kind of sorted out. Um, you know, there's stuff I can't find. I, I've I've I was we had some painting and carpet and stuff done um, before we moved in, and um, bedroom doors were were. Um, removed and things like that, and I went. I was going to rehang the doors, and I've got a couple of rechargeable drills that I had using on some other stuff. And I went to get them, and they were dead. I can't find the chargers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's <laughs> a, it's a moving thing. <laughs> uh, tomorrow I'll have to go. I got, I got a drill somewhere. I I, I just go find it, but. Uh, I'll have to go out tomorrow and either buy another rechargeable. I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure it out. It's, it's you know, like a, it's just it's like a second Christmas discovering all the stuff in the yeah. boxes that aren't yeah. in the boxes you That's thought they right. were in. That's well, right. I got stuff, mainly you know, uh, books and knickknacks and stuff like that, that 
I never really unpacked when I moved down here over a year ago mm-hmm. right. because I knew at the time that that residence situation was going to be temporary while I found something else. Uh, I, I didn't have any clue that I was going to be living on a residential air park, but um, I did know that I was going to be living somewhere else. And so I said, well, why unpack this stuff? Right. Um, just to kind of give you the flavor here, uh, this is old Florida. This is, uh, um, you know, tall, old oak trees and Spanish moss hanging down and, and this kind of thing. I, I, when I taxi the airplane off the runway and in, into literally into my front yard and, and put it next to the hangar to, to put it in, you know, put it away, um, I'll kind of have to dodge an oak tree and I'll have to be very careful when I swing the airplane around that I don't catch the prop on some Spanish moss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got like a like a four acre a lot here, but uh, you end up in and, a great space. We're uh, really it's, jealous. It's, it's gonna yeah, be- you'll you got to get down here though and check it out. It's it's a whole different perspective um, being here. Yeah. Uh, it looks good online and all that, but um, um, it, it's 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 not you know it's not a McMansion by any stretch of the imagination. It's an older home. Uh, it's got its little character flaws, and, and it's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, mean, you know, there is that. Who there the is, heck cares? I mean, but when, it, you say the house has got its character flaws. Let's look at it from the house's perspective and who it's got to deal with. <laughs> I think it, I think it balances out. Well, congratulations! It's very cool, Thank, and uh, we're jealous, and we're coming to visit. So look out. And I am Jack Hodgson, and Yay! Uh, and I'm talking to you today from uh, beautiful Berkeley, California. I'm uh, out here uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area for uh, Mac- the annual Macworld Expo. Uh, maybe the last Macworld Expo, but that's the story for the Macintosh podcast, not for the aviation podcast. But uh, I'm out here, and I'm uh, staying with a friend of mine who lives over here in Berkeley, and uh, having a great old time. The weather's fine. I'll tell you, it's not Florida, but it beats heck out of uh, out of New England, where they had yet another snowstorm the day after I left. But who's counting? Well, it's 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 been a, to me anyway, unseasonably warm down here. I remember a lot crisper days last last winter. Uh, shorts and a t-shirt today, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> and it's been like that for several days. Yeah. So as uh, I think David mentioned, uh, this I think that I think that number four maybe is like not a good number for for UCAP because we've been having a real problem. We have the the infamous lost episode, episode number one hundred four, that actually may still surface one of these days. I'm kind of determined that one of these days we'll we'll finish that episode. Um, that was back at the the sort of height of uh, Dave's internet problems, and uh, it's kind of a tougher one to put together but anyways it's kind of back there then we got to 114 and as dave mentioned we started uh, we were all set, set to go to get it done before christmas and and then uh, we got interrupted and had to stop which was a first for us it's the first time we ever actually had to abandon an episode after we had started but uh we did and then we were going to continue on 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 a sunday last weekend and uh, and it, separately, the two of you called me and said, well, I can't do it today, sorry. And uh, so that was serendipitous. We didn't do it on Sunday. But uh, knock on wood, uh, we're 20 minutes in here, and we're doing this one uh, on uh, on this day, Thursday. And it's afternoon. I realized, I thought it was afternoon just because it's afternoon where I am, but I realized it's afternoon for two out of the three of us. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so Well, we started at 6 o'clock my time, and... and uh, that's you know earlier than normal, and I can kind of consider that's that right. 
Yeah. So anyways, afternoon, evening. Yeah. Yeah. But as a result, instead of this being the final episode for the year, this is the first episode for the year. And uh, I just want to say Happy New Year's and Happy Holidays to all of our listeners. Hope everybody had a great time. Hope you guys had a great time. And uh, Had a uh, wonderful little uh, evening at uh, the Leprechaun's annual chili hanger party at Dead Cow International last night. Sounds like fun. And uh, you saw many of our reprobate pilot friends from uh, the CAF and this little weird pilot club I belong to, and just some general <laughs> uh, good air, some general good airheads, and uh, including including a couple of uh, uh, rather new converts to uncontrolled airspace. Uh-huh. Uh, one of which uh, buttonholed me fairly early in the evening and was telling me about uh, visiting his uh, son, who's in the Air Force. Uh, just before Christmas, and his son says, "Oh, Dad, you got to hear this. Uh, uh, I've been downloading this uh, podcast. I've downloaded all the episodes to my iPod, and he popped it into player, and he said, and 'You're going to hear a familiar voice.' <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was us. It's us. And so, and, uh, uh, did, he, did he actually did he did he actually listen to some, or did he go, yes, son, whatever you say? Oh yeah, he listened to it. And now he's downloading it here, and a couple of friends over the weekend called me and 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 well Saturday and uh, said, uh, what's the URL for that podcast again? And then they called again, and said, uh, I tried it, it didn't turn up. Well, it's got to be there, and uh, so I called it up, and they put an errant space in there where i told them not to uh, okay and then wow there it is wow that's a lot of them yeah. uh including one gentleman my buddy little joe who got an ipod touch for christmas mm-hmm. uh with lots of gigs and uh so he's trying to figure out how to work the itunes website magic so he can get it downloaded every week and like so many of you all do and uh uh, but he's like, oh, I'll listen to a few minutes of it. Uh, I could see where that could be fine on a regular basis. And I went, Joe, you don't have enough stuff to do. Yeah. Well, it never ceases <laughs> to amaze. But all right, that's cool. That's very, very cool. Well, let's get on with it here. Let's uh, a few a few things going on in the aviation world since we last talked, which seems like a long time ago. Um, in no particular order here. Let's see. Um, uh, haha, I knew it. They <laughs> fell asleep. All right. Uh, you know, now it's not clear to me whether this is, uh, did this pilot actually come forward on his own or is this come out of the NTSB report or this is the, uh, this is, this is out of the report. This is the, yeah. uh, Hawaii go, was it go airlines, uh, yeah. flight from about a year or so ago where, uh, as we always suspected, both members of the flight deck crew fell asleep during the short hop between islands out in the Hawaiian islands. And, uh, and uh, ATC kept saying, uh, "Excuse me, hello, hello," and they weren't answering. And uh, and they finally answered and claimed that the, they had tuned the wrong frequency or something like that. But apparently, they fessed up pretty quickly after the fact that they had in fact fallen asleep. And uh, well, I don't it's know. one thing to tell your it's one thing to tell your chief pilot that uh, you misdialed a frequency. It's another one to misinform federal investigators. One can get you just merely fired, which happened to these guys anyway. Uh, the other can get you uh, uh, more punitive, more more punitive actions. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Where's the great line here? There's a great the great quote just describing. He says he said uh, this is the pilot told investigators. Um, this is from the report. 
he said we had gotten back on schedule. It was com- by the way they had apparently flown a lot of segments yeah. um, in the yeah. in the two days prior, which is you know doesn't excuse this, but you know it's kind of part and parcel of the problem if you ask me. Um, but he said we had gotten back on schedule. It was comfortable in the cockpit. The pressure was behind us. The warm Hawaiian sun was blaring it as in as we went eastbound. I just kind of closed my eyes for a minute, enjoying the sunshine and dozed off. And apparently the two of them dozed off. And uh, so, I for don't know. About 18, for about 18 minutes. For about 18 minutes. One of them tells this bizarre story about how he sort of was hearing these calls, but was unable to respond. He was sort of groggy to the point of being hypnotized, or I don't know. Da- not, David and I don't audience. know anything about that. Yeah, no, <laughs> don't know anything about us. that. Uh, never never so, happened, yeah. Sorry, we keep we keep we keep making fun of these guys, and 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 to a certain extent, they deserve to be made fun of because they made a mistake. On the other they, hand, they, they, on the other hand, it's it's a lesson. It's really a parable for all yeah, of us. Yeah, that's going to gonna uh, say they deserve a little bit of attention on the serious side because fatigue in in business aviation, in particular, uh, in the regional uh, industry, the the short haul carriers like what these guys were doing uh, is a really significant issue. Uh, a uh, uh, Flight Safety Foundation uh, joint survey with some of the business aviation practitioners found that about 70% of the business aircraft pilots admitted to instances where they dozed off in the cockpit. And there have Mm -hmm. been a number of accidents that the NTSB has investigated over the years where part of the probable cause finding uh, uh, cited the uh, uh, exhaustion of the crew as, as a factor in the accident. Yeah. Uh, and these guys had each flown eight segments a day for the prior two days, and they'd been getting up at 4 a.m. and not getting in bed until really late. Yeah. And there's a cumulative effect. There uh, there's a, a cumulative effect here, uh, and it starts to build up. And the next thing you know, like pilots that I heard about going going home from Oshkosh one year, uh, they even took a day off before they left, and somehow or another, up in the cockpit, both of them were fighting to stay awake. I'm shocked yeah. at something like <laughs> yeah. something like that could happen, especially uh, involving pilots who attended Oshkosh. Um, yeah, I know, uh, but no, like, fatigue is is a chronic problem, uh, uh, not just are there any pilots, but in the transportation industry generally. That's why we yeah. have flight duty time rules. That's why we have uh, what's why truck drivers. Uh, can mm-hmm. only drive eight hours at a time, and that's why you know the the, the federal the federalities look at logbooks, uh, uh, truck driver logbooks, uh, uh, much more than they do uh, airplane driver logbooks. Yeah. And, and bad news yeah. is they just relaxed the rules for truck drivers. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. But here's my question. So, uh, you know, there are these, you know, I mean, they may not, may or may not be sufficient, but there are these standards and these rules for 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 uh, commercial pilots, airline pilots, and truck drivers and whatnot. But those of us who fly ourselves in our own airplanes, are mm-hmm. are there any good rules of thumb that are kind of practical about, you know, warning signs for being too tired? You know, I mean, we talk about, you know, how we sort of self-certify, quote-unquote, ourselves each time we fly that we're medically, well, you know, uh, you know, okay and so forth. And, it, and I think it would be easier for me to judge that I was medically, un, you know, shouldn't fly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but but how sleepy is too sleepy? You know, how do you know? Well, I, 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 I has anybody ever given us any guidance on this? I don't know that there is any guidance, but it's you know it's there's a well. Let me back up. Um, yes, the FAA does have some guidance. It's it's more of a um, an overall um, uh, are you ready for your flight kind of uh, um, uh, guidance. Um, it's part of their risk management um, series of, uh, I don't know, advisory circulars or training materials. Um, but they ask, you know, are you safe? Uh, and there's a, a, an acronym that they use, I'm safe. Uh, and you go through and the I means such and such and the M means such and such. And, and you go on through. And uh, if you meet all those criteria, then, yes, you're safe to fly. But the real answer is that it comes with experience. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. there have been a lot of times uh, when, you know, I've got a uh, – I've got a – I'm going somewhere. It's, you know, cross-country flight. And um, it's particularly – it's going to be particularly taxing because of weather. Or it's just going to be a long flight even if there is no weather. And, uh, you know, I said, look, you know, I, I just really don't think that this is a good thing for me to be doing. Um, I've never really pulled up short, stopped short, um, and, you know, spent the night or something like that. There was one occasion um, um, traveling down to Georgia from the D.C. area many, many, many years ago in a, an old Piper Arrow. And um, stopped in uh, Charlotte, actually. Uh, this mm -hmm. is before U.S. Airways got into, into Charlotte. But uh, um, stopped in Charlotte for some gas and um, had, a, had to have a mechanic look at something on the airplane. And um, felt really lousy. Just, just, mm -hmm. just, you know, throw me in the ditch lousy. And... Mm -hmm. um, Ended up stretched out, stretching out on the couch in the FBO for an hour or so, mm -hmm. and finally, you know, the, the mechanic comes in and the airplane's ready, and and I was fresher, um, but we're still just, you know, I just did not feel at all really, really well, uh, re really well at all, and uh, mm -hmm. went ahead and, and buttoned up the airplane and launched and, and flew the rest of the way to Georgia, uh, which all things considered wasn't uh, that far, and um, was still just dog tired. Got home uh, to my parents' home and literally spent an entire day on the couch asleep. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And basically, I'd come down with some bug, uh, and I didn't really realize it at the time. Um, but right. by the time I got ready to come home, I was fine. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's just timing, but you have to know yourself, uh, you know, the, the, the signals your body is sending. Um, and you have to think about what it's going to mean to get in that cockpit. There's been a lot of occasions. I mean, I got my instrument rating basically flying weeknights um, um, with, a, with an instructor uh, out of Dulles. Um, we'd work a full day, uh, and mm -hmm. then I'd drive 45 minutes to get to Dulles, hook up with him, you know, 7, 7.30 or something in the evening, pre-flight the airplane, do the pre-brief on the instruction, go fly for an hour, hour and a half, finally roll into bed, you know, about 11 o'clock at night. That's a full day. Yeah. Um, I was younger then, <laughs> but um, um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't do that nowadays. There were times yeah. when I'd, I'd work a full day, 
I'd go get in the airplane and fly for three or four hours uh, at night, IFR, whatever. Um, I was a lot younger then. I was a lot sharper then. And I, w- I don't think I'd do that nowadays. Yeah. Well, David, do you have any any rule of thumb or symptoms that you will trigger? You know that, that you're too tired. Yeah, I I do actually, and I've I've lost days on the road because of it. Uh, yeah. If if when I if I've had uh, less than about seven hours of sleep in the preceding two or three nights or more, uh, I'm probably going to either sleep later and start later or I'm going to skip a day altogether uh, if I've been working days longer than 12 hours for 3 or 4 days in a row prior to a trip regardless of how much sleep I got uh, I will stay later uh, mm-hmm. some of this stuff I picked up from attending uh, Bombardier Safety Stand Down and, oh, yeah. and a presentation that uh, has been uh, a perennial by a fellow named Mark Rosekind He's a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. He used to work for NASA, uh, the, I believe NASA, the Air Force, uh, and he has a company called Alertness Solutions. Mm-hmm. And this is the very topic that, uh, that they, they tackle, and there's some uh, uh, information available on how to map your rest periods and your uh, 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 rest fitness and your fatigue level uh, that's uh, available free through his website. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, his company obviously is in business to make money. They make their money consulting with companies that uh, have issues like this, business aviation, uh, transportation companies, uh, environments where there's uh, a lot of cyclical uh, time change, uh, shift workers, for example. Uh, engineers at nuclear power plants very often will work swing shifts and at other plants where they change shifts every so often uh, so that's how they consult but they do have some uh, some free information on the site that's a little bit technical but it can be of help in, uh, in, in bringing to light the issues and the little common things that happen to us that turn into fatigue problems right. that feed the accumulation of fatigue because that's really where it gets in trouble. Uh, you know, if we have a late night, one night out of several, uh, we're in bed late, we're up early, uh, you know, we may not feel exactly chipper when we first get started, but a couple hours into the day, we're going to be fine. Yeah. And we're going to be mm-hmm. fine through that, through that day. Yeah. But multiply that by three or four days in a row, compound two or three days of that with multiple time zone changes, for mm-hmm. example, which are really easy in our aircraft, even our little piston aircraft. Uh, mm-hmm. Then suddenly you have a rest deficit uh, that is building up on you. And at some right. point, that's going to come crashing in on you like uh, regional airline pilots in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. What was this guy's name again? Mark, Mark, Mark Rosekind. Moving on, um, this is a story that uh, we actually started talking about nine days ago when we first <laughs> attempted 114. Um, and uh, but fortunately, I don't remember what we said about it, so we'll just kind of tackle it from scratch again. This is um, a somewhat old story now. Uh, this has to do with the uh, 747 uh, Continental Airlines 737 that, uh, on trying to take off from Denver. Uh, suddenly veered off the runway and skidded along the grass to a stop where 
one of the engines fell off and there was some damage to the plane and fortunately everybody got out a few people were hurt but uh, everybody got out last i've heard everyone has survived yeah. there were a couple of people who were hurt pretty badly but i haven't heard that anyone has succumbed not fortunately there were some and, serious uh, uh, uh some very serious injuries uh, but um, um no one has yet uh, been a fail from that you know yeah. Now, I still think, and I mentioned this before, and you guys kind of poo-pooed it, I think this is a, quite a mysterious thing, and more mysterious, it just seems to me that usually when you've got a big airliner crash, there's usually a couple of, you know, kind of suspicious candidates that, that you can point to by this stage of the game. I know that it takes a while for them to really figure it out and do their whole deal, but usually there's things you, you know and here we have no idea yeah, what's going on here really don't i mean initially you know just to set the stage here there's a, a scheduled 737 operated by continental airlines uh trying to depart uh, denver international um the runway uh was dry it was clean and dry mm -hmm. it, it is cold uh it was uh, apparently below freezing but uh, uh, i believe that's correct yeah 24 degree cold um it was a little windy, uh, but certainly nothing that was not within the 737's capabilities, not just its demonstrated crosswind component capabilities, but uh, its, its real physical capabilities. Um, nothing apparently uh, wrong with the crew, nothing apparently supposedly wrong with the airplane, yet um, it's, it just kind of lost directional control. And ended, yeah, ended up, they don't think that the engine failed uh -uh. Pr prior to the veering. At first, they were suspicious of the gear, the landing gear, but they've tires, since said yeah. that they believe the landing gear and the tires were in good shape. Last I heard, there was some talk. Um, they had gotten a chance to listen to the cockpit tapes, and they heard a suspicious noise prior to it veering well, off there the was, runway. There was some rough, um, there was a thumping noise that has been heard and, and discussed uh, at approximately the the uh, decision speed, VR or uh, uh, V1 or something like that. And um, they don't know what that was. They don't know what caused the, um, uh, if that is in fact even related to the loss of directional control. Uh, right. we, I, this doesn't say, I haven't, I haven't really scanned it that closely, which way it was running off the runway. But basically, the, the airplane was accelerating. It was basically at takeoff speed. Instead, they lost directional control. And before they could stop the airplane, it had run off the runway and uh, uh, wiped out the landing gear. Uh, the right side caught fire. Um, all the um, passengers in, in the fuselage broke up into a couple of pieces. All the passengers and crew were able to evacuate, uh, but there were broken bones. Uh, don't know if there was any any burns uh, mm -hmm. from the fire, uh, contusions, you know, uh, that kind of thing. A lot of people were were walking, walk literally walked away. But the airplane yeah. appears to be a total. Oh yeah, I think yeah. it's it broken half. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, now, last I heard, they had not yet interviewed the captain of the flight <clears throat> because he was one of the ones who had some substantial injuries. Um, they did say though that the captain was the one flying the airplane at the time, and uh, um, I don't know if there's anything to read into that. Have you have you heard that he's been interviewed yet? I have they not said he, seen that. I. I um, the report the I heard actually suggested that he was incapable of being interviewed, that was like maybe kind he was of what conscious. Was, or that's kind of what I had been led to believe. The flight, uh, the flight officer, the uh, first officer, uh, had been interviewed 
Um, yes. And uh, it's not clear to me if he gave any worthwhile information or if he said, you know, talk to my lawyer or what he said. Um, but it is my understanding that the captain, at least as of the last time I looked at this in detail, the captain had not yet been uh, um, it was not conscious or was not giving uh, useful information. It could be that he's being sedated or it could, maybe he's you know just unconscious or in a coma. I don't know. Yeah. Per se. Now, you know, I can't imagine that this is an issue, but if we're going to like whip this up into some sort of controversy, we have to mention it, that this being a 737, um, this mysterious veering off to one side is somewhat reminiscent to the... Uh, to the uncommanded rudder input things that 737, a bunch of 737s had some years ago. Yeah, the same generation um, model, too. Uh, it is. You know, and it now, is. as I understand it, that problem was finally understood, although it was a mystery for a while. It was understood and repaired. Is that your That's understanding That's my understanding. Well? It's been, you know, literally maybe a decade, maybe not quite. Yeah since there yeah. was any any kind of a hint of an issue with the 737. Um, and maybe we've, you know, just kind of discovered a, uh, if not a, a similar, uh, if not the identical failure mode, a similar failure mode. And, and right. you know, anybody jump in and, uh, and stop me, but uh, basically this was something that was uh, traced to a fault in the uh, rudders, hydraulic, uh, control hydraulic actuation system, something like that. Yeah, yeah. that, that uh, there was a uh, some kind of a, a sequence of events uh, where a hydraulic valve would uh, basically open or close against uh, the designer's will, forcing the rudder uh, to deflect to one side or another. Well, it, it would continue. It, it would actually in, reverse the rudder travel from the pedal motion. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if and, you commanded and, right rudder, it would go left and go left hard. Right. Yeah. And um, but anyways, so in, in flight, that's a bad thing. On the ground, that's a really bad. Yeah, thing. it's a really bad thing. On the ground, we might be hearing or seeing that it's a, it's also a bad thing, and it it you know it might be back. Uh, like well, and something to remember here, uh, and and we see fewer of these instances as time goes by, thankfully. But as with the uncommanded rudder problem that, be, that beset the, the, the 737 second-generation airplanes a few years ago, every once in a while, something that we've never seen before manifests itself in an airplane. And until it does it that first time, you know, we, we, we can't say, well, it shouldn't have happened because it's never happened before. Well, that uncommanded rudder movement on the 737s had never happened before. It happened twice, killed everybody on both those airplanes, happened again, and the pilots were able to save the airplane, and was a full two years downstream from the second crash before things started to line up so that they understood what the problem was. So we may well yeah. be looking at an instance here where something that we've never seen before, uh, something that, had, you know, some convergence of magical mystery gremlins yeah. reared their ugly heads together and, and, and created an outcome that could mystify folks for a while and yeah, honestly could mystify folks to the point where they don't solve it with this accident. And we've seen it with other um, aircraft types also. That's right. Um, That's right. American, you know, lost a uh, an Airbus 300 just out of JFK a, a month or so after uh, September 11, 01. 
uh, because um, uh, the first officer was a little bit too exuberant on her rudder pedals and snapped off the vertical stabilizer. Uh, really? Yeah. 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 Basically what wow. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and we, we saw TWA 800 now. You know, if you if you buy into the uh, the NTSB's probable cause versus some of the conspiracy theories, we saw a fuel tank explode. It never mm-hmm. happened before. No, it um, has happened. It has happened since. Fortunately, yeah. the airplanes were on the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so you know, who knows. In this situation, you know, one one part of me is optimistic that it is our old friend Rudder Hardover, but just a different uh, uh, variation on the uh, on the failure mode. Um, And the uh, the winds were challenging. I mean, the winds were challenging. Twenty seven knots gusting to thirty seven. Yeah, Yeah, but but again, that's nothing that a seven three can't handle. No, I understand uh, that, but if you compound yeah. that with something right. like our old friend uncommanded rudder movement, right. Uh, right, 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 and you get that command in the wrong direction at the wrong time, uh, that 37-knot gust suddenly becomes beyond your capability to handle. And, uh, you know, the airplane takes a hard turn off a runway, travels a couple thousand feet, breaks apart, catches fire, and leaves a lot of people alive but uh, uh, wounded. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we move on here, I wanted there, there's one other lesson that I take from this this uh, story, and and that has to do with being as a your responsibilities as a passenger in these aircraft. Um, I, I got this lesson. This lesson really was driven home for me when I listened a couple of different times to Captain Al Haynes' talk uh, way back when. Um, he was, of course, the captain of the ill-fated, fated, uh, I believe it was the United Airlines DC-10. Uh, that uh, that lost all its hydraulic uh, uh, systems another, uh, in flight. Another one time, first time event. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and 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 it, one of the big takeaways that he wants you to take away from his talk that he gave a lot back then um, was how important it is as a passenger to be prepared to to evacuate the aircraft to understand that safety stuff. Basically, to listen to that safety. Uh, lecture at the beginning. Pay attention, and even if you've heard it a bunch of different times, you know, listen to make sure that it's the same uh, safety stuff that you've heard before. Um, I've I've been traveling a fair amount on the airlines lately, and ever since, but ever since then, this is years ago. I heard Haynes's talk. Ever since then, one of the things I always do when I'm getting ready to 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 take a flight in an airliner is I look around and make sure that I really understand where the the exits are that I know where I am in relation to both the closest exit and the second closest exit. Oh, me exit. too, man. I count um, the seat rows, okay, you know, from where yeah. I am, because I want to be able yeah. to do it in the dark. Yeah. And this is a classic example of why that's important, because some people think, you know, well, if an airplane crashes, I'm not going to be able to exit. It's going to come down in a ball of flame, and that's it. Well, no. There are serious, serious aircrane, airplane incidents that... Um, Knowing how to exit will save your life or maybe save you from some sort of injury. They say that a lot of these injuries didn't come from the 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 stopping of the airplane right. from the, you know, the they came from people hurting each other trying to get out. Um, well, and it's and not so, uncommon uh, in other instances for people to be hurt jumping onto yeah. the evacuation slide uh, right. and and you know maybe in their rush to get off the the guy behind you goes before you've actually got to the bottom. And then he jams up his ankle or knee running into you. 
Uh, yeah. But in any event, I just urge people. This I got this from Haynes's talk a long time ago, and I take it to heart. And that is, pay attention to that safety announcement at the beginning. Well, it, Learn where the exits are. Make sure you know how the stuff works. Well, and let's um, take this into the GA context here a little bit too. Mm-hmm. We, it, I, I discovered, rediscovered some information about our responsibilities to the people that we fly in our aircraft about briefing them on procedures for fastening the seat belt, when they should have the seat belt fastened, how to unlatch the door if they have to, where the fire extinguisher is, uh, as well as things not to do. Don't touch the buttons. Don't turn any knobs. Don't be helpful without asking me first. Uh, that big but, red handle that says eject, don't pull that. Yes, don't, don't pull that. Uh, the uh, the uh, importance of knowing how to unlatch the door particularly in a lot of aircraft that have only one door, cannot be overstated. Because mm-hmm. if the person's not familiar with the uh, uh, compound mechanism on a lot of aircraft doors, they may be pulling on a handle that's not going to work until another lever gets pushed. Uh, them getting out is really kind of important to you getting out behind them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, these are things that we have to, to, to remember. And it stunned me that this doesn't come up in the – it's not even mentioned in the practical test standards. Right. right. You know, really? they, they, don't, they don't quiz you on, you know, that part of the FARS that says, how do you help your passengers be safe and live through an incident that you're in command of? It's not on the yeah. PTS. Yeah. And I believe that Amy gives this is one of the talks that Amy gives yes. is uh, on briefing your passengers and uh, um, you know if you're ever at an aviation event such as Sun and Fun or Air Venture where Amy is on the uh, uh, forum program track her down um, and regardless of what she's presenting on track her down but uh, you might be interested in that particular talk. Uh, Dave, so why would you yeah done any of that research? Oh, I was uh, I was being mercenary and doing a little for hire project for some little outfit called Aviation Safety Magazine. Oh, oh really? that's right, that's right. Yeah, shameless uh, plug, uh, man. You fish good. Plug. You fish, I do. Dave. You're uh, you're Dave, you're in, Dave, you're in safety just about every month this, these days, right? I try to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 A lot uh, of good stuff there. Anyways. Yeah, so Dave, I'm, Dave go, did go ahead, Jeb. Plug yeah. the magazine. Plug, really plug quick, the story. Just, no, I'm plugging Dave, actually. Dave did a piece for me on uh, uh, passengers, passenger safety, and how to help Stupid passenger passengers. tricks is stupid, what we started yeah, stupid, out with. Basically, basically stupid passenger tricks. And uh, uh, it's a very good piece, and uh, looking, forward to, uh, looking forward to reading. But I was just, I was just pulling. Yeah. I'm more pulling Dave's change than anything else. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Let's see now. So there's a really interesting thread. Um, in nine plus days ago, when I first put this item on the uh, on the list for us, um, it was just a, a, an initial question from a listener. It's since turned into a pretty interesting discussion thread in the forums, and that is the question. Um, this is a. Uh, a, a, a I don't know if he's a new new private pilot or, but he's a private pilot who is getting ready to begin his instrument flight training. And his question to the forum was, 
should I take an accelerated training course where I do the whole thing in a few days or should I take a longer and stretch it out over you know weeks and months and what are the pros and cons of this and uh, it's turned into quite an interesting discussion um, uh, uh, with some some fairly you know strong feelings both ways I'm wondering what you guys think about I and I talked about this well you you, um, you mentioned it and you said that you know you to quote you uh, I think Dave did his very quickly I'll ask him next time we're in the hangar which is why well, I, I did that but which is why I haven't weighed in on this particular string yet. Uh, okay. But so, you know, I mentioned this a while back that I had signed up for a possible uh, IFR ground school um, up at uh, up in Sanford, and uh, um, and they, they asked whether you preferred accelerated or six weeks, and I said I wanted six weeks. The reason I prefer a longer term is that, A, I feel like I learn better if I have time to kind of internalize it. I don't want to have it poured into me so fast. The other thing for me had little less to do with training and more to do with social. Is I, I wanted six weeks worth of of excuses to go to the airport every Saturday morning and hang out with a bunch per- of pilots. Perfectly valid. Perfectly good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I so I prefer non accelerated In your position, with your work being yeah. the way it is, I yeah. think six weeks could be problematic. Yeah. That is that is an issue. That's sort of another issue because altogether. That's, that's but, one of the reasons why I did my ground school. Uh, in a three-day uh, uh, compressed, I don't know whether you'd call that accelerated, compressed, or what, but it was a three-day crash course, for lack of a better phrase, uh, <laughs> for the instrument to pass the instrument written. I did the same thing for the private yeah. pilot written because uh-huh. that guaranteed me if I could make a weekend free yeah. that I wouldn't be missing any classes because of work travel. Right. Yeah. Uh, the second thing was that I made sure that I was already flying instruction when I did these, because I think mm-hmm. that it works against you if you take that in a vacuum and you're not going, right. you know, it was six week course, three day course, whichever. If you're not going out into the airplane as you know right after this or during this, then there's yeah. a lot that evaporates anyway, and you wind up relearning it in the airplane. That's a pretty regular theme in the discussion in the forums that uh, that if if you're going to take the accelerated training, you really need to then get out there and be flying a lot right afterwards. Um, you need to not. I think you need to do that if you're taking the six week course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so. well, they they were saying things like you know if 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 this is for for truly commercial, if you're about to go out and and you know you need you're going to fly for money, or if you're in the airlines, or if you're in the military, uh, no, 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 no. You, you do yeah. this if you're going to go out and fly. Yeah. And if How you're are you serious about maybe. your flying? Yeah. yeah. First of all, are we talking about an instrument rating here? Are we talking about a a, a private pilot? A certificate, a commercial certificate, a multi-engine add-on, a seaplane add-on. What are we talking about? And I think the answers differ based on what we're talking about. Um, I don't know that I would do um, uh, accelerated training for a private or commercial um, instrument rating. Come see, come see. I did uh, like Dave. I did accelerated for my ground school, my instrument ground school. Uh, I did. This was back in the dark ages. Um, and I did the AOPA accelerated uh, instrument ground school. Basically, got you through the written, uh, and it did a fine job on getting me through the written, um, mm-hmm. which is what I wanted it to do. And then, you know, I, it was really after that point, once I had the written out of the way, that I started doing the flight training uh, in earnest. And uh, a lot of the stuff that was covered in the in the uh, training for the written. Uh, was revisited 
for one oh, reason absolutely. or another. Sure. On in in just the going through the the uh, training with my double eye, um, I've tried. Uh, let, me, let me put it another way. Uh, I've had bad experiences with some of the uh, accelerated flight training as opposed to ground school um, uh, activities out there. I, I really don't have a fundamental opinion as a result. But um, I, I think a lot of it, though, really does depend on what we're talking about. Are we talking about a basic certificate? Are we talking about an add-on rating? Or are we talking about the instrument rating or what? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think the answers differ based on that. Well, in my my case, I learned a long time ago that the phrase immersion has come up in this string. Uh-huh. And something close to immersion does work better for me. Uh, I hunker down more. The repetition, I take, you know, flight instruction twice a day, uh, yeah. five or six days a week. There's a cumulative effect here in what, I, what, what sticks for me as opposed to when I've tried to learn things by going to a class once a week. Uh, and that's just me. Now, for my private, uh, I, I found a flight instructor that would work with me daily, uh-huh. weekends included, because I had a goal. I had a target. Uh, we started my flight instruction, and then the following weekend, I did the three-day ground school, took the written, and got that out of the way, and then continued flight instruction. And beginning to end from my first duel to my check ride was just a little bit over four weeks and 43 hours total flight time. Yeah. Uh, and I took mm-hmm. the last two weeks of work. I let, took the last two weeks. I actually took vacation from work so that I could uh, knock out things like the uh, dual cross country, the long solo cross country, uh, and make them count in ways that were important to me personally. Rather than do the minimum required for the cross-country, we did a duel that was 580 nautical miles, and then I did the solo back over the same route, same day, yeah. in a 110-knot airplane. I did the commercial the same way. I, mean, I, I had taken the, the written, passed the written, no, no issues, and forgot about it. And I'm coming up on expiring and expiring written, and I didn't want to retake it again. So I went out and and uh, found an FBO and an instructor in an airplane that would work with me on my schedule, and and uh, we knocked it out over I don't know uh, three or four or five week period. Um, I, I wouldn't call that accelerated though. My my mm-hmm. instrument, uh, I like you. I'd started it. I took the uh, three day class. I passed my instrument with like a 96%. I was so thrilled. Uh, my instrument ridden. Uh, then I got interrupted. Yeah. And I was looking at it, the, the knowledge that I picked up and it evaporating. And then something came along that kind of uh, inspired me. It was an assignment, a work assignment, a trip that required instrument airplane, instrument pilot. Uh, And when I was offered this, it was only about four weeks out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it took me a week and a half to find a flight instructor that would work with me on the schedule that I had with the intensity that I wanted. And once I found him, we knocked it out in 14 days. 
Yeah. Uh, then I took a day off for an oral review with a different flight instructor. And on the 16th day, I took my check ride. Uh, I did 95% of my time at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those were the hours when I could get the uh, the flight instructor and my work schedule cleared to ver- merge on this. And mm-hmm. I made the deadline for getting the instrument paperwork to the people that were running the trip. I made the deadline by eight hours. <laughs> now, that's, cut- yeah, that's cutting a little bit close. But the long and the short of it is when um, my uh, Czech airman signed me off, he put me through a two or three extra steps Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wound up flying about 30 minutes longer than usual because of it. Uh, and part of his logic was he knew that I was going to launch off on this international trip. I was going to ask you that, yeah. Okay. In about four days. Mm-hmm. And the probability yeah. of me having to use the instrument ticket to really navigate bad weather was really high. Yeah, right. And he wanted to make sure yeah. when I went out the door that it, you know, it was more than just a pencil-whipped instrument ticket that was satisfying a legal requirement, but one that I could use to the extent that I wouldn't kill myself or my wife. Uh, that 16 days exhausted me more than anything I've ever done in an airplane. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I've heard over and over again the instrument may be the toughest uh, rating that you, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, you, you haven't gone all the way, you don't know, but tougher than CFI, tougher than... I couldn't tell you about the others. All I know is that it was uh, it was a complete re-education in how to fly an airplane because yeah. there is so much in the private pilot syllabus that you unlearn and learn right. to do differently in the instrument syllabus. Uh, and, and that's really one of the core uh, one of the core skills is that you abandon all visual reference here. And so many of the things that you were taught to do by visual reference, hey, just go out the window. You don't get to use them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Other things that you were allowed to do in a more or less, if you can get it done without hurting yourself fashion, you're going to pass a check ride, uh, turned into these precision flying exercises. And I say precision because you wind up having to do things within plus or minus 50 feet. With right. blinders on at night, uh, and you really work yourself. Uh, right. But when you come out of it, brother, you are a different pilot. Yeah, you are. Right. Um, and you know, e- each rating is different. Uh, that's why we have them. I mean, the private pilot is is no less of an achievement than uh, any of the other uh, ratings are. Absolutely, but. But the the instrument rating does require a different skill set. It requires a different mindset. The commercial requires a different skill set than the private or the instrument. Um, uh, The CFI, the ATP, they're all different. They're all looking at uh, a different level of of skill but a different level of perfection also. Um, Among my my friends that have both commercial and instruments, there's not a one of them that would tell you – that if they were have if they were faced with having to do a do over, the one that they'd want to do over would be the commercial, because yeah. it's far less demanding on them than the instrument. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it so, is, and, and, a, and I, I, I've got both also. But uh, um, uh, the commercial is is uh, flying the airplane to a to a level of precision. Just as the instrument rating is is flying the the airplane to a level of precision, but you're using different sight pictures, you're using different um, um, 
me- different metrics, if you will, yeah, to gauge right. that precision. Um, oh, and there's yeah. maneuvers that you're required to sure. do in a commercial that aren't really part of real life flying for most of us in, in the rest of our life. Right. But they're in the, they're in there. They're part of the the test standard, and you have to be able to demonstrate them. Just like uh, the day before my check ride for my instrument, uh, like I said, I did a, a about three hours of oral review with a flight instructor that I didn't know from Adam, and that's the way we set it up. Somebody that didn't yeah. know me, and I didn't know. Uh, he didn't know anything about me. My background would have been through nothing. So he's approaching this like a check airman would. Uh, then. The morning of the check ride, I hopped in the uh, in Air Comanche and spent an hour and a half practicing the 360 degree turn, 90 degree bank, plus or minus 50 feet, because it had just whipped me silly trying to get that right in training. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it never came up on the check ride. But by <laughs> yeah. God, I know I can do it. Uh, yeah. The reason it never came up on the check card is because the examiner saw you practicing all that. It's, oh, he's got it, Dan. I don't need to worry about that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. Anyways, there's a great thread in the forums, uh, the UCAP forums. I urge everybody, including you two, to go and check it out. And uh, if you have anything to add, please do. And the bo- bottom line is that you, 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 each of your circumstances is going to be unique. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at Jim's circumstances years ago. Uh, my circumstances when I got mine, I look at Jack's and say, well, you know, Jack, if you had a nine to five, going to the same office five day a week job, stretching that out over six weeks, it'd be a no brainer. But when you have a job where you have short lead time, bounce trips of no predictable nature, that could be a little problematic. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a factor. Definitely a factor. We got to move on. Moving on. Um, Take a drink. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, never mind. It's twist off. <laughs> so Bert Rutan, um, who always makes really cool airplanes, um, but they always look very, very weird. Um, and uh, in the news uh, somewhat recently, again, this is a story that was from prior to our last attempt at doing 114, um, is that uh, White Knight 2 has actually had its first flight. White Knight 2 being the uh, new improved uh, mothership for uh, the uh, the uh, spacecraft that uh, that Br- uh, Rutan and company are building for Virgin Galactic to make a commercial spaceflight operation. So uh, it's a, just a bizarre looking airplane. It really, you know, I was looking at the picture here on the website. This is a, from the story. Uh, it's actually from a Fox News story, uh, foxnews.com story, and. Um, this airplane looks like sort of like a Siamese twin airplane. It's like two airplanes joined at the wing. Yeah, you kind of want and, to send it into surgery so they can come out as two different yeah, airplanes. Yeah. Well, because it's two. Basically, as we understand it, it's two identical fuselages, um, sharing one long wing and uh, twin tails, and uh, obviously, of course, designed to carry the uh, spaceship too. Um, on between the two fuselages remember, underneath that wing. Remember the scene in the movie Airplane when they're in the tower and Lloyd Bridges is giving all these orders, you know, this airplane's about to crash and he's do this, do that, do the other thing. And there's these two guys um, that are like Siamese twins. They're kind of conjoined yeah. at the shoulder. Well, here you go. There you uh, go. 
<laughs> I picked okay. a hell of a day to stop sniffing glue. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of aviation movies, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So, uh, <laughs> White Knight 2 has flown. It's very cool. Uh, and uh, we've been promised a, uh, a visit by this aircraft, uh-huh. uh, presumably with Spaceship 2 slung under its wing, but I don't know that for a fact, um, in uh, next summer at AirVenture. So, that'll be pretty cool. But uh, do, is there anything else to this story? Do we know anything more about well, this? Well, I still uh, have a question about, flight? you know, uh, do you have two f- captains and two first officers? Because it looks like there's two flight right. decks there. That's right. Who's you, want, you want the left seat in the left fuselage and the right seat in the right well, fuselage. Just just to close the loop here in this episode, of course, what they do is they have two complete crews so the other crew can take a nap. There you go. <laughs> I see. Ah, okay. All right. Well, congratulations to uh, the uh, Virgin Galactic crew and to the Scaled Composites crew and uh, uh, yet another cool airplane coming out of Mojave. And, and for folks that are interested, there are still seats available on uh, Spaceship Two uh, for your suborbital flight into uh, astronaut pin territory. Uh, it is only $200,000 for flight, and of course the UCAP bar is open so that one of the three of us can do that. Yeah, yeah we got we got to you know, dust off that tip jar. That's right. The tip jar is still there. It does, does okay. A little, a little steady okay. but slow yes. stream there. And uh, uh, let's see now. What were you going to say? Oh, so this is not on the list, but you mentioned movies. Um, the the listeners have have taken upon themselves. This is what I wanted to happen in the first place. So it's really cool. The listeners have taken it upon themselves to create a new section in the wiki where they are now building a list of aviations and videos that have uh, an avi uh, or movies and videos that have an aviation theme to them, and uh, they're putting all these things that we've talked about in the past: movies like Always and uh, and Air America and Airport and uh, or Airplane, excuse me, um, and uh, so forth, are appearing in a in a new page in the wiki. So uh, good. Oh, it, 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 it is growing. Really quickly, I'm really impressed with the with, with the yeah. folks jumping in on this. So, uh, yep. you know, if you've got a favorite movie with any hint of flying in it that you don't see on the list, don't hesitate. Toss it in there. All right, let's see now. So this one got my dander up a little bit, and I don't know, maybe this is just a routine no-big-deal thing, but um, um, the New York Class Bravo airspace has announced recently that they're now requiring general aviation reservations to fly into the airport. And, I, I mean, I don't fly into these airports everywhere anyway, so I don't know maybe why I even care, but it just seems like yet another regulation. And, you know, is this common to have to actually get a... And presumably reservation... It's sort of implied here is approval. You know, it's like they don't have to necessarily give it to you. And uh, well, what 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 that means is it's set aside so many slots in, in a day, which is something that's been done before. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And now they want to uh, be able to more precisely manage those slots by requiring you to uh, p- reserve the time that you expect to come in. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the FAA is in a big fight with the airlines over, over uh, auctioning off slots at these airports to begin with. So it doesn't surprise me that they've decided to uh, take a little of their picking on uh, energy out on GA, and admittedly, mm-hmm. the Class B, the, the uh, New York Class B, has a boatload of GA traffic going into places uh, like White Plains and uh, uh, Teterboro that don't get airline traffic. But wait a minute, this isn't about 
is this is this a reservation to get into the class Bravo, or this is a reservation to land at one of there, the key airports? There's two different things going on there's here. Two there's two still, here. yeah, there's still reservations require far reservations required uh, at National and O'Hare, for example. Okay. Okay. Uh, it used to be oh, at, at JFK okay, right. uh, and LaGuardia also that IFR reservations were required. That went by the way board, went by the boards a few years back. Uh, now it looks like it's coming back into play. This story, and I haven't really had a chance to peel the onion, uh, this story reads as if it's a uh, um, uh, non scheduled aircraft going into the New York class Bravo. Uh, or uh, I should say, um, uh, landing or departing from uh, one of the three, one of the well, JFK, Newark, and LaGuardia, um, requiring uh, um, a reservation to go into that Bravo. Reservations aren't anything new. On one hand, uh, that doesn't mean we like them. On the other hand, anybody who was flying in the aftermath of the 1981 Patco strike. Um, mm-hmm specifically flying IFR, yep. may remember the old General Aviation Reservation System, or GAR. And that was put into place, it was, gosh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years it was in place Yeah. Um, in the aftermath of the Patco strike and, and Reagan firing all the controllers um, because there simply wasn't the capacity. And that was not just class bravo related that was nationwide yeah. or at least at least the 48 states if you're going uh, to you fly wanted, ifr if you wanted to fly if you want to file and fly ifr you had to have a reservation to do that because of of the congestion issue or the or the, the uh, workload issue per se um and you know there, there was a lot of times where i knew how to flight the next day and i was going to leave at such such time and you, you could only do it like I don't know, 24 or 48 hours in advance, and you know, I'd be up late at night, you know, making phone calls and and doing all this crap. Um, other airports from time to time also have reservations put into place. For example, um, during the NBAA show, um, the airports, some of the airports in the in the convention city, will have a reservation system put into place. Uh, mm-hmm. for IFR uh, um, operations uh, to and from that airport. Other uh, airports around the country, every summer, uh, I think Nantucket gets one. Uh, every oh, really? winter, Aspen well, gets one. Yeah. Uh, well, you need to do an IFR reg- re- re- reservation to fly IFR into Oshkosh during the fly-in, right? Is that, that, am I right about that? That has changed in, in recent years. Uh, uh, okay. You don't need a reservation, per se, to do that. Um there's there there was a time, gosh, I don't know, it was O two, O three, um NBAA was at um um Orlando and um um Well they had a stunt my, my, effect. Yeah, yeah. My boss and I had hooked up and he needed a ride to Lauderdale to pick up his airplane, which was coming out of maintenance, and I was just gonna my my plan had been to go and get out of there VFR and go up to Georgia. The weather was fine, no issues, uh, but the weather where we were going was was not so good, and uh, I didn't have a reservation, and it was like, you know, two hours before we wanted to go wheels up, and there, was, there wasn't a reservation available either. So I got mm-hmm. on the phone, and I called the Tracon, uh, Orlando Tracon, and, and pleaded with the guy. I said, look, my boss just threw me a curve. I need to get out of here IFR. Can I do that? He said, yeah, let me talk to the big cheese here, and put me on hold, and says, what's your end number? 
and gave him my end number, and he says, yeah, you're good to go, no problem. So he mm-hmm. kind of worked our way around the system, kind of had a little handshake deal. He wasn't going to write me up for not having a formal reservation. But um, uh, I don't know that much about this Class Bravo in New York thing. I'll have to research that. And, and, and well, you know, I, I remember going to NBAA in Atlanta, uh, not this past time it was in Atlanta, but the uh, prior uh-huh. time, about five years ago. And they had a stump, special traffic management procedures in, in place for going into Peachtree to Cab, uh-huh. uh, as well as uh, uh, Fulton County. And uh, I was going into PDK. I've got everything all set up with the uh, FBO that's going to handle me. Uh, and got my uh, slot reserved, my arrival slot reserved, three days. I mean, yeah. they, they were taking them 72 hours in advance. And, you know, 71 hours and 59 minutes, I was on the yeah. phone punching in this arcane set of key commands right. to reserve my uh, my arrival slot at PDK. Uh only to have tailwinds on my departure from Wichita <laughs> get me over there almost two hours faster than I'd planned. <laughs> so I landed at Huntsville, Alabama, uh, and I just fought my way through weather. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it. I'm thinking I'm going to get on the other side of the weather, and things are going to slow down, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. I actually picked up ground speed, so it's like, okay. Uh, Huntsville's a good place to put down. I'll wait it out. Uh, of course, the storm comes through while I'm at Huntsville. I wound up having to transit that freaking storm again. Uh, and got into my, uh, got contact within that 15 minute window that I was supposed to. And then spent 50 minutes being vectored around up around Rome, Georgia to get into Conga line because the, uh, ceilings and visibilities had a lot of guys in the higher category airplanes going missed. Mm-hmm. They were going missed a lot. Yeah. And they were sending <laughs> yeah. it back yeah. around to the conga line. And uh, I got into conga line and through the dent of uh, a little soft spot in the weather and uh, cooperation from uh, Atlanta approach, I got on the ground at PDK and just made the turn off in time to see a Falcon 50 touch down and blow four tires trying to get stopped. <laughs> I think you mentioned this once before. Yeah, it was yeah. so hey, speak- long and so hot. And when I t- t- pulled in and shut down, the, the guy that's handling me was a friend of mine on loan from uh, uh, Addison, Texas. Uh, he, he looked at me and said, I watched you come in. Nice job, nice job. I said, well, I felt like I was a little out of control there. And he goes, oh, man, that ain't nothing. Wait till you see this Falcon 50 that we're having to tow back. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of flying into highly restricted airspace here, moving on to the next item on the list, um, there's a really interesting piece uh, in uh, on the uh, AOPA online, one of their blogs, their flight planning blog. This is a posting written by someone who I don't know, but you guys probably know, Dave Hirschman. Yeah, we know Dave. Uh, and... Dave has written a really fascinating piece here. Uh, talking, he decided apparently he is somewhat new to the uh, to the Maryland area, um, and uh, and or in any event has over the years always avoided the ADIS, has fl- gone out of his way to fly around the ADIS just to not just not get involved in that whole mess. And he decided to 
do something about that, to change that. And so he sat down and went through all of the process in order to get all of the training and per- permissions and whatever um, in order to be able to fly into uh, the uh, the uh, into the into the freeze into the what is it FR what is it stand for Jeff? flight restricted zone flight restricted zone. So interesting piece. He talks uh-huh. about what you have to do, what the whole process is, and then he talks about actually taking the flight and uh, flying into both the ADIS and into the freeze. Um, and he went to which one? Which airport did he go to? He College went to the, Park and to he went to College uh-huh. and uh, and talked about a very very nice uh, stop at at College Park. And and th- there was sort of two points that I took from his from his piece. Uh, one was just describing the process of getting this permission and uh-huh. and you know author. Authorization and and then doing it. And the other thing was, he said that part of the reason that he wanted to do this was that he felt like we shouldn't abandon these little airports that are stuck inside this airspace and that uh, we shouldn't be scared away from them because of the regulation and the, and exactly the, and the right. restrictions. Exactly. Um, that we, we owe it to these airports to help them stay alive by, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think, I think that's, that, that point really, I took that to yeah. heart for sure. Well, the, and these and, are uh, very interesting little airports, uh, by the way. Uh, um, I, College Park, what the oldest continually operating exactly. airport in America. Exactly, and they have uh, they regularly the have uh-huh. you know cookouts and and you know social program and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, Potomac, uh, I know I know very well. Um, uh, flown in and out of there a lot. Uh, they used to have some of the cheapest gas every anywhere. Period. They probably mm-hmm. still do. You have to be a member of their quote fuel club unquote. Uh, but I, I've regularly gone in there just to get some cheap gas and 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 patronize the airport. And and uh, Dave Wartovsky, who runs that airport, so uh, uh, I consider to be a good friend. Uh, and Hyde Field, um, which is mm-hmm. just next door to Potomac, uh, they have the patterns actually staggered so that they don't conflict with each other. Um, Stan Fetter runs that airport and is another uh, someone I consider a good friend. Uh, now, those are the so-called DC-3? College Park, Hyde, and Potomac are the DC-3 mm-hmm. airports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, now, Dave, or, uh, Dave uh, Jeb, yeah. you apparently have gone through this process have, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to read yeah, this piece. Basically, he this- describes it correctly. I... Uh, um, um, had to go to uh, to National Airport to the uh, the airport security office there, and and be fingerprinted and fill out a form, um, mm-hmm. and uh, then um, visit with the uh, FISDO at Dulles. Um, you know, kind of, you know, can you walk and chew gum? And and uh, you know, they've done a, a violations check on my on my airman record. The uh, fingerprinting is done to do a criminal history background check on, on that kind of a record. And you know, you don't have to turn your head and cough or anything, but um, uh, they they do kind of you know go through your record and make sure that you know what you're doing. And you know, thankfully, uh, you know, someone uh, up there likes me, or some forms never really got filed, or you know, who who knows? <laughs> but uh, they they gave me my little secret decoder ring, and and uh, yeah, I did my little. Now the way he describes it, one now flying the flight, it sounds to me like as long as you're kind of pers- you know careful and have all your you know eyes crossed and your t's dotted, that um, this is not that big a deal. Well, to, it's uh, it's fly. it's not. There's an extra step once you once you get all this done. Uh, the, the fingerprinting and the the FISDO visit and all that, and you get your secret decoder ring, um, then filing into or out of the freeze 
um, you have to contact the Leesburg, uh, Virginia Flight Service Station. They have mm-hmm. a notebook. Um, I'm sure it's chained to a desk somewhere uh, that has a record of all the secret decoder rings. And oh, okay. um, you ha- when you file your flight plan to go in or out of the freeze, uh, they ask you for that secret decoder ring. And they mm-hmm. look it up and verify it, and then they put into the remarks of the flight plan, you know, whatever voodoo it is they do. Um, right. The the only aspects, I guess, for lack of a better term, of uh, actually flying in or out is uh, you know that you're doing something, um, I won't say, you know, out of the ordinary, but you're doing something that um, people are watching very closely. Yeah, okay. I think he described it as the it's it's like when you find yourself driving down the highway with a state trooper right well, behind it's, you. It's kind of like that, but it's even worse than that because not only uh, is there you know the the radio work, not only is there the controller work, not only is there flying the airplane. Uh, putting all that aside, there's an extra set of eyes watching you uh, that you'll never talk to, you'll never hear about, and they're watching you basically all the way down to the ground. Uh, I they have the radar to do that. Um, there have been occasions where I was, you know, I, I, I just the, the Potomac Tracon and some of the controllers up there. I, I came smoking out of uh, uh, Manassas one afternoon to go over to Potomac and, and tank up on some cheap gas, and you know I filed direct and and you know everybody everybody you know on the planet basically knows what I'm doing except apparently the controller handling my sector. And mm-hmm. I go, you know, I don't know where the hell the guy thought I was going or what I was doing. Um, but I go smoking towards the freeze, and I've about got my spinner poked into it. And he says, uh, what are you doing? Turn right immediately. I'm like, dude. And, you know, of course, I turned right. And he finally apparently got his paperwork squared away about 20 seconds later and let me continue on. But that will kind of tighten up your sphincter. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, when you do that, I, I was in the ride. I, 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 you know, everybody knew what I was doing except apparently my controller, and he just hadn't gotten the the word yet. But uh, it's it's. Do these go ahead? Do you think the controllers get jammed up if they, you know, watched somebody go into the ADAs that didn't have a clearance? They can't do a whole lot about. Uh, but but they, you know, they've got to at least catch it and call it out, and they you don't know, have talk to, to catch it, it at all. Someone's going to catch it for them. Uh, there's, yeah, well, there's a, but, first but, of all, there's a there's a separate position at the Potomac Tracon, at least one separate position at the at the Potomac Tracon, that does nothing but look for ADIS and freeze violations. Maybe just ADIS, I don't know. Uh, the freeze is a whole different animal, uh, in that um, um, there's a whole different set of eyes watching uh, that. They've got, mm-hmm. you know, all this fancy um, laser uh, uh, notification system set up around the boundaries of the freeze, um, things like that. Um, it's when it's all work. You know, I don't, I don't you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest to anybody that uh, they not do this. Uh, it, it, as as uh, David Hirschman in this article correctly points out, you know, we kind of sort of ought to be doing this to support yeah. these three airports. Absolutely, uh, and. And you know the uns- I don't know if he, he says so in this article, but the other uh, um, 
uh, good I, good reason or good idea for for doing this is to just kind of stick your thumb in the eye of the as as Wartowski would call them the forces of darkness. Well, uh, and if more of us did it, uh, yeah. you know the the less uh, the less it would stand out that people were doing it. The more exactly. the powers that be yeah. would get to see GA. You know, behaving like adults and, and and working within the system and causing no damage and not being something to fear, and the more that would encourage other people to do it, and the more I'm not going to say relaxed, but maybe the more accepting of our existence these guys would be, because there are times when the powers that be in the security apparatchik seem to be anything but accepting of our mere existence, and we cannot let up on that. And here. Right. Here's something else. I mean, if you if you uh, if you live in the D.C. area, you know what I'm talking about, and and uh, um, you, you you should you know try to do this. You're local, um, and again, you should be supporting these airports. If you live outside of the D.C. area, this is still something you should consider. Uh, for one, uh, if you have any reason to travel to the D.C. area uh, regularly or or semi regularly, these airports are the closest into the city. And, um, and if you give them enough warning, they can, we'll have a rental car available for you, and, and they'll make sure you get serviced, and they have maintenance, and they have fuel, and, and all the normal amenities. Um, they're, they're not um, you know, the newest structures there. They're not the most modern facilities, but the facilities are there. Um, but another point here, too, is um, this is something that really kind of separates you from other pilots. That's right. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many pilots have gone through this process but i'm guessing the number is in three digits it's not over a thousand and think mm-hmm. about that as as a, you know kind of a, a a badge on your or notch on your belt or something like that that you know you're freeze approved yeah you're freeze approved you're, you've got the usda or usdot or usss uh, uh stamp of approval on your uh, on, on your flying record and, and you can pretty much come and go from some of the more secure airspace in the world at your convenience and that's, that's not right. something to uh, blow smoke at that's right that's right so anyways save the dc3 and well, uh, nice, go, go visit and buy some of their cheap gas and say hi and, nice, uh, nice job on dave hirschman's part Jim. yeah it was very very thorough and uh uh um, well done article um I, something i should have written several years ago as a matter of fact so hats off to dave yeah and uh, it's a long complicated url but it's uh, it's uh, aopa.org uh, in their flight planning section and we'll put a complete link to that in our show notes shout outs Oh, I want to say congratulations and howdy to my uh, good friend, Molly McMillan. Uh, She has my old beat on the business desk uh, covering aviation in Wichita at the Wichita Eagle newspaper. And a few weeks ago, she soloed. She's been working on her private. Cross Country's up next. Uh, She's blogging about her experiences uh, on a site called the Air Capital Insider to which we'll have a link, uh, and, uh, you know, way to go. Uh, years ago, Molly asked me, you know, for advice on things that she could do to help her do a better job on the beat, and one of the very first things out of my mouth was take lessons, 
even if you don't plan on getting a license, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you'll understand so much more about the why and the how and the wherefore of this business that is so important to Wichita. If you uh, get out and do a little flying in little airplanes, and now she's she's going after the whole enchilada. So uh, Molly, way to go! Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, it's a relatively easy URL. It's uh, it's blogs.kansas.com/aviation, and uh, and it is pretty interesting. I was scanning it earlier today, so that's very cool. Um, I want to put a shout out here, uh, a little uh, pat on the back. Congratulations, uh, Ada guys, to our friends at EAA. Um, a pretty interesting study, actually a little mind-boggling. Actually, let me stop and think about it. But an interesting study came out recently. Um, let's see now, a new economic impact study conducted by the University of Wisconsin <laughs> Oshkosh shows that Air Venture Oshkosh brings an estimated 110 million dollars of economic impact to the Oshkosh area each year. Uh, we, uh, we always suspected that uh, that air venture was good for uh, for our friends up in the Wisconsin area. Apparently, it's very good. This is like seems pretty good to me. And uh, and and as you might imagine, EAA is crowing about this. Uh, yeah, on I got I got to say that 110 million sounds yeah. low. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this really is what they does. found out. This is what they tracked, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, as I said, as I said earlier, I, that's a lot of broad. Yeah, well, if you think of, about uh, the economic impact of the Experimental Aircraft Association on what the locals call the Fox River Valley uh, uh-huh. on a year-round basis, uh, that 110 million uh, is just icing on the cake. There's a foundation mm-hmm. underneath that 110 million that lasts the other 50 weeks of the year. And I, I, I get the sense sometimes from reading news coverage out of the uh, region that uh, sometimes the locals aren't as appreciative of the asset they have there uh, as they could be, just as sometimes I feel like some of the citizens in Wichita aren't as uh, appreciative of what the aviation industry delivers to this town. Uh, yeah. So, you know, congratulations to EAA. And like Jim says, $110 million, uh, you know, I'm hoping that's a conservative ep- estimate because so often these kind of uh, uh, results are conservative. Wouldn't surprise me a bit if it was much higher. Yeah. Jeb, you got anything for um, us? I'm torn between uh, something very esoteric and something that we might touch on our next episode. Uh, I'll go well, with the latter, and that is uh, to Patty Wagstaff. Uh, hang in there. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What I would say, and uh, don't let the bastards get you down. Okay. We'll leave it at that, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, Dave Higdon is uh, uh, an aviation photographer. He's also a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the web? Oh well, they can find me at avbuyer.com uh, or on the AEA website uh, very frequently. Uh, which I'm having trouble finding, uh, aea.net. That's the uh, website of the Aircraft Electronics Association, which is kind enough to allow me to grace the uh, pages of their avionics news on a monthly basis. Cool. And you can also just Google his name and uh, get a lot of information about a lot of the work he's been working on. Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. And Jeb, where can people find you on the net? I uh, can be found at jeburnside.com. Uh, which is my personal uh, web page, my personal uh, uh, website, and then uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. 
And then occasionally you might find something I've written or, or will write or did a podcast on or even did some video on uh, at avweb.com. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can uh, learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. As always, we want to thank Jeff Scarfrey Jet Ward for doing a great job creating our show notes. We also want to thank uh, the many of our listeners, uh, and particularly Mike Morgan and now uh, Royce Earl is the new name that I want to add to this list, um, who uh, have been creating all the awesome show opening disclaimer clips. We used one of uh, Royce's this, this time around, and he's just given us a bunch of really hilarious ones. Although we now find ourselves in the odd position of, uh, you guys haven't heard this yet, we now need to have a disclaimer disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because we've got, these, we've got these disclaimers that are kind of fun and sort of almost parodies of the disclaimer, and I'm concerned that they aren't now good legal disclaimers uh, any I think longer. they still count. So I had to put a disclaimer disclaimer at the very beginning saying, uh, please listen to the regular disclaimer at the very end and now listen to the fun disclaimer. So anyways, but it's great and we love these things and we hope people will continue to send them in. We thanks thanks to uh, Mike and to Royce uh, who have already been sending them and to the many other people. I had, uh, I had to play the uh, Christmas theme disclaimer for uh, the world's oldest air transport pilot during our interview and uh, <laughs> he gave me a big ho, ho, ho. So way to go. Yep, yep. Some great stuff there. And also, don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog. You can view the forums. You can check out the restaurant list and the, the wiki in general, including the new uh, aviation movies and video section. Uh, that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Go flying, folks. It's a new year. Live longer because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. And that's right. And so that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.